<laughs> this morning we have a guest with us, and Todd Miles, and he is a professor at Western Seminary, a professor of systematic theology. He is, I think this is your fourth or fifth time maybe? At least, yeah, it's, it's certainly that. Um, he is a, a very welcome guest. He is a, a good friend of mine. I love him. I respect him. He's one of my favorite people, and he's one of my favorite preachers, to be honest with you. And so that's why he's here um, preaching on a topic out of 1 Timothy, and you'll see why I invited him to come when we get to that text. We're jumping ahead a little bit. We've been on this subject on eldership and leadership in the church the last few weeks, so we're just continuing that <clears throat> conversation, and you'll see when we get there. But we always pray for a local church or a partner church before we get started, and so we're going to pray for his church uh, that he is at now. He was at Henson uh, Baptist Church, and now he is at Gresham Bible Church as one of the teaching pastors there. And we're going to pray for the lead pastor, Mike Dahl, and also for Todd and that church as we pray for us Today, So why don't we pray together? God, we come before you and we're just thankful for all that you're doing in us and in our community. And we thank you, Lord, that um, lives are being transformed uh, daily in front of us, Lord, and that you're transforming us more into the image of your son, Jesus. And we pray that you would continue that work in our lives. But we're also so grateful that your kingdom and your work is bigger than what's happening here. It's happening all over. And this morning we are particularly thankful for Gresham Bible Church. They have been a, a witness for the gospel there for many years now. And we're thankful for this new season that they're in uh, with Todd Miles there and Mike Dahl as the lead pastor there. And we just pray, God, that this new season of ministry for them would be so fruitful and that they would see lives transformed, both growing in their faith as believers and also people being saved out of darkness into your marvelous light. And so, God, we just commit them to you as we commit ourselves to you now as we study your word together and grow in Christ together. We just ask that you would be glorified in your church, strengthened and built up, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why don't you please welcome with me Todd Miles. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you here. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5? 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, writes these words by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to uh, Timothy, the church in Ephesus, and also the church here in Canby. Beginning in verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is uh, good to be with you here this morning. And to be able to, to look at this passage of scripture, um, Aaron asked me to do this passage. And again, you'll, you'll see why. Well, I'll just tell you right now, because we're going to talk about how much you pay your pastors and how you should discipline them. Um, and he thought that might be a little awkward for him to preach that sermon <laughs> here. Um, and so he'll be at Gresham Bible next week uh, teaching our congregation about that. That's not, that's not actually true. I, I, 
that's not, we haven't asked him to do that yet. So, um, at, at any rate, uh, why is this so important? Why is it important that, that, we, that we treat pastors and elders well, both in terms of our care for them and also our discipline for them? Well, I, I, our, our current context, this, this last week brought word of another pastor in the Pacific Northwest who was removed from his pastoral role when it was discovered that he had had an inappropriate relationship with a member of his congregation some years before he was at the, the, the church. It, it came to light. He had not been honest with the church, had basically been living a lie with his family and, and church, and, the, and, and they removed him as pastor, which they should have done. Now, for, uh, I, I don't know how that falls upon your ears. Uh, it could be that if you are not a believer and you're here listening, news of yet another evangelical pastor is not the least bit shocking at all. You might have even come to expect that sort of thing. Now, never mind that literally thousands of pastors diligently and faithfully care for their congregations without hint of scandal or malfeasance. We know that for the unbelieving world, this is just business as usual. Of course, pastors are bilking congregations. Of course, pastors are abusing their congregations. Maybe if you're here, you're, you are a, a follower of Jesus. Um, you, it's disappointing. It's, it's, it's disheartening. Maybe the scandals are, are wearing on you also, making you a bit frustrated, maybe even disillusioned. If that's the case, then I would invite you, listen to Paul's words to Timothy here. Christ's standards for his under-shepherds, your pastors, elders, they are very, very high. Nothing, good or bad, has caught Jesus by surprise. The good shepherd anticipated that his under-shepherds would care well for you, and he gave instructions for how we, in turn, are to care for them. He also anticipated that some of those under-shepherds would fail and would fail their congregations and he gave instructions for what to do in those cases. Now to go back, maybe if you're an, an, an unbeliever, you're, you're very skeptical of pastoral ministry, and that's what we're gonna be talking about, as you, as you heard when we read, read this passage. Maybe you're here because you're intrigued by Jesus, but the church that purports to represent him is tiring you out with sin and hypocrisy. And so this morning, I would urge you, please listen to the high standards that Jesus expects from his pastors, from his under-shepherds, in terms of work ethic and in terms of discipline. And then consider whether those expectations are consistent with Jesus' own claims about himself. Maybe Jesus is worth giving your life to. So the context, the context of this passage, 1 Timothy 5, Paul is writing a letter to his young protege, Timothy, who was pastoring a church in the city of Ephesus. And this was a church where Paul had spent a lot of time, more time than he spent in any other Greco-Roman city years there. It was kind of a sending church, a, a, a training church, like a seminary almost. And so Paul had a special place in his heart for the church in Ephesus, but he also had a special place in his heart for Timothy. And the purpose of the letter is given halfway through in chapter 3, verse 14. Paul writes this, I, Paul, hope to come to you, Timothy, soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So to that end, Paul has been given doctrinal, really ecclesiological, how to do church instruction to Timothy. He's mentoring him in how to pastor Christ's church. And of special consideration for us as we're looking at chapter 5 is what came in chapter 3, where Paul laid out the qualifications for elders and deacons. 
And our attention is drawn to the fact that elder qualifications are, with the exception of being able to teach, all centered on character. And you might not expect that, right, as, as you think about, well, what, what will it take to be an elder? Well, certainly they should have good business sense, or they should have, like, dynamic personality, or they, they should be able to cast vision, or they should have leadership skills, or whatever. But, of course, none of those things are actually listed. In 1 Timothy 3, what is listed? Very unremarkable things. Character, integrity, godliness. Right? That, that's, that's what it is. And, and, and as you look at the list, you go, oh, wait a second. Th th these guys aren't necessarily remarkable. They're just supposed to be Christian. <laughs> right? There, there, there's nothing in those lists of qualifications that we wouldn't expect from any man or woman who was a follower of Jesus. Right? So they're remarkably unremarkable in that sense. All centered on character. And then Paul warned Timothy in chapter 4 that there is going to be people who are going to rise up and they're going to seek to lead the church astray. And so to counter that, Paul exhorted Timothy, preach boldly. And he also encouraged the men and women of the church to care for and encourage one another. So that's, that's basically where we are by the time we get here. Where verses 17 through 25 are all about how the church is supposed to treat their elders, both positively, well, it's, they're both positive. One is happy, one is sad, but they're both positive, okay? Um, but we should think before we get there, what exactly are elders supposed to do? What, what are they supposed to do? The Apostle Peter had written a letter where he kind of outlined a little bit of what pastors are supposed to do. He, he wrote, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. And that word shepherd is the, is the Greek word where we get our word pastor. It's the same thing, both the noun and the verb. A shepherd is a pastor, a pastor is a shepherd. To shepherd is to pastor, to pastor is to shepherd. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So shepherd, that is pastor, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So the elders are supposed to be pastors, that is, they're supposed to be shepherds, shepherds of God's people. And, and if we were to do a biblical theology of what shepherds do, we would find that we're given instruction on what the like people who took care of sheep, like literal animals were supposed to do, but most of the references to shepherds are metaphorical of taking care of people, okay? And, and, and so we learn what shepherds, what pastors do by looking at what shepherds did with their sheep is, is how this functions. And, and what we find out there is that, that elders or pastors are supposed to provide just like shepherds would provide for the sheep. Elders though, pastors, they feed the people of the congregations, the word of God. Elders, therefore, have to be able to teach. Shepherds would guide the flocks to water, to pastures, that sort of thing, in the same way elders and pastors are supposed to guide and lead the church. Shepherds would protect their flocks from dangers, especially from the outside, but also perhaps from even from within. Elders and pastors are to protect the people of God from the dangers of this world, both outside the church and also that, the dangers that rise up from within. Shepherds would nurture or care for their sheep in the same way elders and pastors are supposed to nurture or care for the people of the congregation. And then for, for Peter, the, the illustration of a literal pastor taking care of sheep, it breaks down in that Peter also says elders are supposed to serve as an example. Pastors and elders are supposed to serve an example. I don't know that shepherds actually served as much of an example for the sheep. If they were, I don't think they actually paid much, the sheep paid much attention. Um, maybe that's the way a lot of churches are too, so maybe it's apt. Um, that, that was kind of a joke on you, but, uh, so, but I'm glad a few, few, few of you laughed. That's great. Um, the, the bottom line is this. You should be able to look at a pastor or elder and, you, and say to yourself, I want to be like that man. 
that, that feels like a non-negotiable here. The Spirit is at work in this person. God is sanctifying this elder. And, and that's why, again, the elder requirements of 1 Timothy 3 are so unremarkable. Elders are to, mature, are to be mature, growing Christians. The author of Hebrews said this in chapter 13, verse 7. He said, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You should be able to look at the elders, the pastors here, and say, I'm not precisely sure how to follow Jesus, but I'm going to follow their example as they follow Jesus. So now we get to our text. Verse 17. We're just going to walk through this. Verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. First thing, before we get to the double honor part, I want you to notice what's presupposed, what is actually kind of implicitly commanded here. Elders are supposed to work hard. They're supposed to work hard. That, 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 that word where it says, um, especially those who labor, that, that word for labor, it's not just a common generic term for work. It always refers to hard, usually physical menial labor. So pastors and elders are supposed to work hard. And because of that, because of that, they should be accorded double honor. I'll tell you what I think that means. Respect and compensation. Respect and taking care of them. Now, you might be thinking, well, we don't pay all of our elders here. And that's okay. That that would be appropriate. There are lay elders and there are staff elders. And what, what the churches have historically done by paying some of the elders, but not all of them, is that you're basically saying, we value what you do so much here that we cannot afford to have you take time away from the work of the ministry, the work of the church, so that you can work another job to provide for your family or for yourself. It's, it's literally in our best interest, and here I'm talking as one of you, right? It's in our best interest to pay Aaron so that he can give attention to me. That's, that's what you should be thinking, right? Uh, and, and then you have lay elders, and the de- therefore the demands on them would not be as great in terms of, not in terms of character, same character, but in terms of like how much they labor for the church. Just by matter of simple time arithmetic, they don't have the time, right? Uh, but, but for some of, you, some of your pastors here, you've said, we want to pay you so you don't have to be bivocational. So, so, so you can give the whole, the whole work week to taking care of us. So therefore, accord them double honor. First off, respect. This is, <laughs> give honor to whom honor is due. This is all through the New Testament. Romans chapter 13, verse 7 says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. That doesn't apply to the church. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. I don't think that applies to the church in the same way. Respect to whom respect is owed. That definitely applies to your pastors. Honor to whom honor is owed. That definitely applies to your pastors. Now, why would I even have to say this? Because we live in an outrage culture, right? You know that. Our culture just feeds on outrage. You, you, you haven't even like accomplished anything in your day if you haven't gotten angry at something on social media. It's, it's interesting. Are, are, are you following the whole Twitter thing with, with um, Elon Musk who's like limiting the number, amount of time you can spend on Twitter? And people are freaking out and he's like baiting people by saying, I'm actually doing you a favor by limiting the amount of time you can be on Twitter. And, and this, oh, more outrage and anger and all this that, that's, that's blowing up here. Um, I'm not judging one way or the other whether he should do that or not. But, but it's true. Social points are scored through gossip and criticism, very rarely through standing up for what is right. So this is a profound pastoral impulse or, or, or input here. Don't be like that, right? Just, just stop that. Stop that. Um, speak well of your elders. Speak well of them, both to others and to God. 
speak well of your elders to other. Have like a, like a godly gossip, is that, is that a thing? That start where you're like gonna start, I'm just gonna speak well of my elders and I'm gonna speak well of them all the time to, to whomever I can and, and see what happens in the church. I'm not saying lie about them. I'm not saying lionize them. I'm saying just be generous to them in terms of how you respect them. And, and know this, right? No qualified elder will ever want to be put on a pedestal, right? No qualified elder will. So speak well of them. And also speak well of them to God. That is pray diligently for your pastors and elders. And this, the rest of this passage is going to demonstrate why. So respect them. Second, financially support your elders. That's the second part of the double honor. And then Paul explains it in verse 18. He says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. I'm going to circle back to the ox thing, and the laborer deserves his his wages here in a moment. But let me just say this to you. Um, Churches should be generous. Y'all should be generous with your, your pastors. It's not your job through what you choose to pay them to keep your pastors humble and dependent on the Lord. And I don't know if you've been in churches where you've heard that before. Well, we don't pay our pastors much because we want to keep them humble. You know what? If they have the character required for the office, according to 1 Timothy 3, if they labor hard, then the job of pastoring you will keep them humble. I guarantee it. And it will drive them to their knees. I promise you that. You, by virtue of being you, and I could say this to anybody, in any church, right? You, by virtue of being you, we are all broken people living in a broken world full of broken people. You, by virtue of being you, are going to keep them humble. I promise you that. The paycheck is how you encourage, provide for, and honor your pastors, not how you sanctify them. If that is your thinking, confess that as sin before God and repent, okay? Be generous. Here are three guiding principles for, for, for how to pay pastors. Three. Number one, be generous. Number two, pay them so they fit in well with the totality of your congregation. They should be able to move around from person to person, not having more than everybody, but certainly not having less, right? They should be able to to, to, to hang out and to be with you, right? That's number two. So number one, be generous. Number two, pay them so they fit in well. Number three, be generous. Be generous, okay? Now, Paul gives first some Old Testament support for this. And this is a favorite analogy or illustration of his. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he's writing to the church in Corinth. He, he pulls out the same don't muzzle the ox verse, He writes, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. But then helpfully to the Corinthian church, maybe because they weren't as intelligent as the church in in Ephesus was, he has to explain the illustration to them. He says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Rhetorical question. No, God doesn't care that much about oxen. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? Paul asks the church in Corinth. It was written for our sake in case the church in Corinth didn't get that it was a rhetorical question, he tells them, it was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Now, Paul has just compared your pastors to dumb oxen, okay? And as they are threshing the grain or whatever. I don't even know what oxen do. They're, they're like pulling through what, whatever is going on in the Greco-Roman world at that time. And, the, what, and in the, the ancient Near East, in the law of Moses, it's don't put a muzzle on the ox. That is the principle is that the ox should be sustained by the work that he's doing while he's laboring for you. Deuteronomy 25.4, which is where that law appears in the law of Moses, it's in the middle of a discourse on justice, providing justice for all, especially the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. And, and then, then there's this weird statement in there, don't muzzle an ox while it, while it treads out the grain. Is it just for a beast of burden, a dumb animal to get its sustenance from its labor? If that's the case, then how much more so a human laborer. If God cares about the oxen, don't you think he cares even more about a shepherd in Christ's flock? 
So that's, that's Paul's principle there that he pulls out of that, um, that passage. He then quotes something we would say, oh, he's quoting from the New Testament. Ah, this is where it gets interesting because the New Testament wasn't written yet. It wasn't canonized. It's like in the process of being written, but he quotes from a Jesus saying, and he calls it scripture. Did you notice that? He says, as the scripture says, and then he quotes Deuteronomy 25.4, to which everybody would say, well, yeah, I know that scripture. But then he quotes Jesus, and he says, this is scripture too. And this, this, this um, st- saying of Jesus, the laborer is worth his wages, it appears in all of the gospels, just about word for word in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I would just say, I think that's evidence for the canonicity of the Gospels. Does does that make sense? So even before they were written or while they were being written, Paul looks at the Jesus saying, and he says, this is scripture. It is the word of God. I think that's evidence, and it also illustrates why the early church never struggled with the canonicity of the four gospels. It's like, well, of course those are the word of God. They're the words of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus. There was never any debate about Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John in the early church. Okay, why though? That's the end of the rabbit trail. Why give elders double honor? Why do that? Two reasons, because they care for you and because being a pastor is hard. Pastoral burnout is a real thing, and it is a unique thing, I would argue, as well. From a stress standpoint, pastoral ministry is very difficult. You might think, well, my job's hard, too. Yeah, I get it. It probably is. It's just not hard in the same way. Pastoral stress is a fairly unique thing when it comes to all the other uh, jobs and occupations that are out there. Why? Because the pastor's day is filled with a variety of activities that require him to switch tasks, and that switching constantly, it brings stress. I mean, if if you think about what a pastor does, and, and this is like a fairly typical day, fairly typical day, work on a sermon or a teaching, think about budget, wondering about, uh, child ministry protocols, doing premarital counseling, then going to counseling where a marriage is blowing up. Those are two very different things, radically different emotions involved, right? And then maybe you go to the hospital and you're with someone who is sick and ill, or maybe you're talking to someone who has just lost a loved one and you're counseling, and then it's wash, rinse, repeat over and over and over and over again. Dr. Richard Deshaun, he's a leading expert on job analysis. He evaluated the job of local church pastor for one mainline denomination, and this was his conclusion. He says, the breadth of tasks performed by local church pastors coupled with the rapid switching between task clusters and roles in this position is unique. I have never encountered such a fast-paced job with such varied and impactful responsibilities. It's not easy. It's not easy. So pastoral burnout is like a real thing that has its own title, pastoral burnout, that counselors are recognizing now. I just recorded a podcast, now a word from our sponsor, uh, <laughs> Food Trucks in Babylon, where, I'm ta- where we talked to Dr. Jeremiah Peck, who's a faculty member at Western, about pastoral burnout. And then he's, he identified this is kind of what pastoral burnout looks like. Number one, internalization and over-identification. It's really hard for a pastor to stop being a pastor because they can't stop being a pastor. When you see your pastor, when you see Aaron, you see him as your pastor, and he doesn't clock in and then clock out, right? If, if you see him in the grocery store, oh, I got to talk to him about this. Or if you see him at you know, wherever, it's like, oh, I got to talk to him about this pastoral concern. He, he, you're never off. You're never off. And it gets really easy to internalize that and to over-identify with it. This is who I am. But pastor is what you do, and you might have a pastoral heart, but it's not, it can't be your identity. 
then that leads to relational isolation where you don't have like life-giving friends. You have people who are always needy all the time. I'll say this from my own experience. I, I, I'm seminary prof, love it. Elder and pastor at church, love that too. There are, but, but there's like two kinds of people. There are those who are life-giving and then there are those who are, they, they just take. And, and it's not because they're greedy, that, that's kind of the, that comes with the job, right? And man, I, I, I love the people who just wanna talk with me about blazers. About, you know, is, you know, what do you think about Dame? And then we grieve together, and, you know, <laughs> that, that sort of thing. And, 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 and I love talking theology, and I'm always happy to do that. I'm always happy to do that. I, I actually, it's kind of life-giving as well. Anyway, you, you can't ever turn it off. Emotional exhaustion, not that you become numb, but it's just really hard to go from premarital to marriage blowing up. It's just real. And then... Uh, uh, being there or nearby on the phone anyway with those who have just had a child born to those who have just lost a loved one. It just is, and it gets hard, it gets hard. And then that ends up leading to like spiritual failure where you can have your theology all right, perfect. You know, so I, I know it ultimately doesn't, like your state doesn't depend upon me, not ultimately, it's a work of the spirit, right? But when people fall in the church or when they're just not growing, it's really hard for pastors not to feel like a spiritual failure. If only I could have done this, if only I could have done this or something. And it's just hard to turn that off. And then, you, then that circles back to that whole idea of, of identifying, this is what my identity is. This is what my identity in Christ is. Not child of the living God, adopted, forgiven sinner, but I'm a pastor of God's flock and my people are failing which means I'm a failure. Anyway, okay, so that was kind of dreary, wasn't it? So what can you do? What can you do? Pray. Pray. Pray for your pastors. Pray for them. Speak the gospel to your pastors. Remind them of who they are in Christ. Feed them. Feed them. Talk to them about the blazers or their favorite foods or, or whatever, right? Now and then. And honor your pastors in the way Paul outlines here. Double honor. Take care of them. Which leads us to the next part, which is, a little, which is positive, but it's harder, how you care for your pastors through discipline. In one sense, the rest of this passage is the same thing that Jesus outlined in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, where he talks about church discipline. And we normally read that passage, we think, oh, this is hard. This is a negative thing. Because when you think church discipline, what's the first word that comes to your mind? This is the congregational participation part here. <laughs> Throw out some words that you would associate with church discipline. Right? I'm sorry? Punishment. Punishment. Excommunication. Good things, bad things. No, I think we normally think those are bad things, right? But so, so, so we think church discipline, that's bad, that's hard. But if you look at the church discipline teaching of Jesus, it comes right in the middle, sandwiched in between, profound teaching on uh, avoid sin and, and the good shepherd is the one who leaves the 99 to find that one erring sheep. It's about restoration and reconciliation. And, it, and then, the, that, then you get to verses 15 through 20 on church discipline. And then after that, you have profound teaching on forgiveness, radical, radical forgiveness. So that leads us to conclude that this church discipline thing is all about restoration, reconciliation, and forgiveness. Those are always the goals. There might be some other goals there, but it's, it's always about that. And, and in one sense, as I said, on the one hand, what Paul is about to say about how you discipline pastors and elders is the exact same thing. It is Christ's rescue mission to save a wandering saint. What are those steps? Number one, you go to a brother who sins, and most of the time, they repent. Now, I, uh, um, most of the time lately, because I wrote this book on, on marijuana, I get invited to churches to talk about marijuana. Um, 
because that's just what I do now, it seems. Um, but oftentimes I get asked to go to churches and talk about church discipline. And so I'll, I'll, I'll always ask the question, I'll say, we've just read Matthew 18, 15 through 20. How many of, has this happened to you before? And of course, no one raises their hand because you think what? You think excommunication. And if you had been excommunicated from a church, you wouldn't raise your hand in that crowd and, you know, and, and admit it, right? And, and so then I'm trying to be provocative. And I say, this happens to me a lot. It's happened to me so many times I, I can't even count them up. Because step one is when a brother or sister comes to you and says, Todd, I'm not sure that you should have said it that way, or I'm, I think you were too harsh with the kids, or I think you were whatever, right? And if I'm in the spirit, I confess my sin to God and to the one whom I sinned against, and I have just been disciplined by the church, and it is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Now, who do you think does that more than any other person in my life? My wife, of course, of course. And it's not because she's a nag, it's because she is godly and loves me, right? Okay, so th th that's the first time. 99.99999% of the time, Christians, that's sufficient for them. Sometimes it's not. So you increase the pressure, by increasing the exposure, you go with another person to that individual. Most of the time, that's sufficient. Sometimes it's not, though. So then you tell it to the whole church, trying to get this person to repent. See, you're increasing the pressure by increasing the exposure. And then maybe if that doesn't work, you, you have to remove them from the church because there's one thing that, that is absolutely true of Christians. We repent. Christians repent. There is no such thing as an unrepentant Christian. You get into the church, that is, you, you believe the gospel, you repent and believe, and you maintain daily a lifestyle, a commitment to repentance. Christians will, true Christians will eventually repent. And if you've come to the end of all these steps and you've, you've, it's, you've just exhausted it, you, you have to say, you've, you're not giving me any confidence anymore that you're even a Christian because you should repent. And so we got to remove you. Our prayer is that you are a genuine Christian and you will eventually repent and come back to us. That's, that's what this whole thing is about. And in that sense, nothing is different with the elder. There's, there's no special category when it comes to that idea. But on the other hand, how you handle an elder is going to be a bit different. Charges of unrepentant sin are to be taken seriously and they're to be addressed with these three things, discretion, determination, and disinterest. I alliterated that for you and I picked words that weren't all that helpful, but it alliterates, so that's more important when you're preaching, right? So... Here's what I'm getting at. Look at verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is not special or unfair treatment based on favoritism towards the elder. This is wise treatment, I would argue, recognizing that leaders are often the targets of accusation due to the public and important nature of their responsibilities. We live in a world that is looking for pastors to fail not just because we live in the United States in the year 2023 and we live in this outreach culture, but because there is a spiritual battle that is going on and the forces that are arrayed against us are greater than we are unless we are in the Lord. At which point, they are not greater than us, right? So, um, so that's the, 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 the evidence of two or three witnesses. It's, what that is, it's a, it's a call to use discretion, discretion but not cover up, wise discretion. Because you go on, what we find is that public sin requires a public rebuke. And so here's the determination and disinterest part. Verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. That rebuke has to be public. There is no private elder sin because it affects everybody in a way that for a, a, a non-elder, even though we live in an interconnected body and there is no private sin for anybody, but there definitely isn't for a leader in the church. There just is not. And so the rebuke must be public. It cannot be swept under the rug. We can't have a good old boys network. We have seen how horrific that is in the American church, 
uh, and we're, we're paying the penalty for that right now because of the reputation. Why must leaders, why must spiritual leaders be held to a higher standard where it's a public rebuke and a public removal from office? We don't just kind of delete their name off the church bulletin, right? And, and, and then just leave it a mystery as to why they're no longer an elder. Why, do they, why are they held to this kind of higher standard? Because sin among leaders, just like with all people, it sears your conscience. You know this from your own life. The more that you engage in a certain kind of sin, your conscience is seared. Your heart is hardened to it. This happens to everybody who sinned, but elders cannot do their elder task, their shepherd task, if they're not sensitive to sin and able to hear the Spirit's voice. It's in your best interest. You cannot have your pastors and elders have a hard heart towards sin. <laughs> your lives depend upon it, if you will, right? Second, sin among leaders mutes the teaching of God's word. Now, the primary way that elders do their church responsibilities is through teaching, but when their hearts are hard through their own sin, it will affect the way they teach, and it will affect what they teach. You've heard this before, right? You've probably seen it, maybe, even, where pastors who are engaging in a certain kind of sin, they will either go over the top in criticizing that sin just to make up. It's almost like they're preaching to themselves or they'll ignore it or distort it completely. And again, you can't afford for that to happen. You need to hear the whole counsel of the word of God, not just the parts that your pastor has mastered. Does that make sense? So you can't have that. Sin among leaders also, and this is tragic, it gives permission for others to sin. This happens all the time, and you wouldn't think that it would because it's embarrassing when a pastor gets removed. So, so say like at, there's a church where a pastor has an extramarital affair and is removed publicly. What ends up happening? Almost every time, more people in that church engage in the same kind of sin, even after the pastor has been caught. Isn't that, it's strange, because you've seen it. It's like public humiliation, and yet there is something implicit in following the pastor where you go, I think, well, my pastor did it, and maybe it gives you an excuse to engage in a behavior you've been wanting to do yourself. You can't afford for that to happen, right? And then sin among leaders brings shame to Christ and the gospel, and you know that. It's embarrassing. It, it is embarrassing for Christians when other Christians, especially the leaders, fall. And it's really embarrassing to Jesus. Because of this, the stakes are high. There's no room for a good old boys club where the leaders protect each other, sweep sin under the rug. Sin must be dealt with, as Paul prescribed, with discretion, but then determination and disinterest. And when that happens, the result is fear. Not ungodly terror, but the kind of holy fear that comes from being in the presence of a holy God. Um, at, at a prior church that I was at, we had to remove an elder one time. And it was the, one of the most weighty, hard things. But every, the whole church was there, and it was so silent you could hear a pin drop. And people walked out with this sense of weightiness. It's like, this is real. Satan plays for keeps. Jesus plays for keeps. Determination, because it's going to take courage and faith. Disinterest, because favoritism is not allowed. We have seen what has happened when elders give preferential treatment to other elders and they ignore the words of Paul here. It's, we see that in the ne very next verse, verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. No favoritism allowed. Paul invokes here the very presence of God, Jesus Christ, the elect angels. The matter is that serious. The elect angels are the messengers of God, angels, many of whom the scriptures say they act as witnesses, ministering agents to Christians and other churches. They're watching. We would expect Paul to invoke the presence of God, but it is interesting here. He invokes the presence of Jesus. And so I, I just want to point this out. It's obvious. Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord of the church. Christian, non-Christian, 
We have to remember that church belongs to Christ. He's risen from the dead. He watches over the church. In Matthew 18, that church discipline passage we talked about, he promises that when church discipline is carried out, at each and every step, the authoritative presence, his authoritative presence, goes with the church. It is as though he himself is carrying out the restorations and the judgments. In fact, it's more than it is as though he himself. It is literally Jesus himself who is carrying out the restoration of sinners and the judgments on them. So if you're listening and you're not yet a repentant follower of Jesus, the gospel message is that Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord. He is in fact God in the flesh, God taking to himself a full human nature, lived a full human life, a perfect life, died an unjust death that God had orchestrated through sinful people to act as a punishment for all sin, mine and yours. But because Christ was righteous, death could not keep him. He rose from the dead, and now he reigns over all the earth from heaven, presently hidden from our view, but not for always. The promise is that he will return again to judge the living and the dead, to consummate an eternal kingdom of righteousness and perfect justice. The mission of the church is to proclaim that gospel message, the same one that you hear Sunday after Sunday preached from this pulpit, inviting all to repent and believe so that you too can be part of that forever kingdom. So that's my invitation to you today, Christian. That's why taking care of pastors and elders is so important. The mission of the church is urgent. The reputation of Jesus Christ is at stake. The souls of men and women are at stake. This gospel message must be proclaimed and it must be modeled. And we dare not sideline ourselves through silly or stupid, sinful, tragic rebellion against our Savior and our King. So discretion, determination, disinterest, that actually starts when elders are called, and that's what we see in verse 22. Use discretion in calling an elder. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Make sure that you pay close attention to those biblical qualifications for elders. It's all about character. It's all about character. And sometimes we're so quick to affirm the qualifications for elder based on things that are not biblical qualifications. Boy, this guy can cast vision. He has good business sense. He's got charisma. I love his personality. None of those things are in the Bible, though, in terms of biblical qualification. Instead, it's all about character. Keep yourself pure, Paul says. We take part in the sins of others by ignoring them. Be careful about just rushing someone forward to where you're ignoring sin. Because the body of Christ is interconnected. We talked about this. We never sin in isolation. We need each other. We all need to be on our A games for the sake of one another. When we ignore the sins of others, worse, when we put someone forward for elder whom we know is caught in unrepentant sin, we enable and encourage that sin and then it spreads. And we've seen enough of that in the body of Christ. We don't need any more. Now, Paul probably thought that he's going to sound like some of the people who had been troubling the Ephesians. Because he then writes, very strangely, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Paul is not saying, hey, Aaron, when it gets rough, just turn to the bottle. It'll all go away. Right? <laughs> he's not saying that. He's saying, I, 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 this is my best guess, because it's weird. Is that okay to say from the pulpit? That, that's kind of a strange thing, just wedged in there. Here's why I think he did it. Paul wrote to Timothy in chapter 4 of this same book. He said, The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. I suspect there were people who were saying, hey, look, if, if, you, if you really want to be pure, then you have to avoid these foods and you have to avoid these, these drinks and you have, to, you have to do these things, none of which were actually in the Bible. It was all a bunch of legalism. And, and I think Paul throws this in there for the sake of Timothy, but also for our sake by saying, the whole idea of keeping yourself pure, make sure that it's actually biblical. The Bible tells us what is right, and the Bible tells us what is wrong. Don't bind your conscience to do things the Bible does not prescribe. 
do not bind your conscience to avoid those things the Bible does not forbid. So be discerning. Do not hastily accept someone to be an elder. Verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. That's why we can't be hasty in elevating people to the office of elder too quickly. It takes time to see the kind of character required to be an elder in Christ's church. Remember that in this very same letter, Paul required that elders not be recent converts. If we wait and observe, we'll see time-proven character, the fruit of the Spirit. You will save many whom you set aside or install by putting them too hastily into an office that might be dangerous for them. But we shouldn't hastily reject someone either. Verse 25, so also good works are conspicuous, even those that are cannot remain hidden. One of my favorite books is Lord of the Rings, and this seems like a good way to end by quoting Sam Gamgee. Um, he said to Faramir at one time, when Faramir was trying to decide what he was going to do with the ring, because he had it, he says, to him, handsome is as handsome does, we say, quoting his gaffer, whatever that means. Now is a chance to show your quality. I think that's a good note for us to end on. We know the saying that character is doing the right thing when no one is watching. Character is proven by your deeds, though. And your good deeds are not unnoticed. They might not be seen by your contemporaries, but they're always seen by the Lord, the King, who will return to reward. And in the meantime, do not grow weary in doing good. It's probably a good place to stop. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm grateful for this church, and I'm grateful for its gospel witness, and I pray, Father, that, that, that you would continue to, to, to use Can Be Christian for the purposes of your kingdom. I pray that the, the gospel would ring forth boldly with great compassion and sensitivity. I pray also, Father, that you would protect the pastors and elders of this church from sin. I pray, Father, that this church would be made of a congregation that loves and respects and honors their elders and is willing to do the good things for them and the hard things. Bless them to that end, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.